For Chelsea fans everywhere, this is the ultimate football app for you. Never miss a match with live commentary, goal alerts, lineups, in-game stats and TV and radio links for over 100 leagues globally. Download the free CFC Blues app now from the App Store and Google Play. What's up everyone, you're listening to At The Bridge Pod, episode 46, and today I sit down, virtually of course, with Tom Overend, the guy you know as one of the big Chelsea personalities on Twitter, and I'm going to find out more about that guy behind the Twitter profile, how he came to support Chelsea, a lot more about his life and how he's gone about doing the journalism he does on Twitter. So let's get this special episode on the road. Welcome back everyone to your host Mikey and today is someone who has been on the pod before and you all loved his time during the episode and that is Mr Tom Overend. So how are you doing today sir? I'm great. So glad to be back on the At The Bridge pod. Oh so kind, so kind. So obviously as listeners know you're a big Chelsea personality on Twitter. You've posted a fair amount of content. You've done your own sort of side bits with obviously the absolute Chelsea uh, group, which is incredible. And today it's just simple because of the times that we're in, unfortunately, at the moment. There's not a lot of on the on trend Chelsea content. So, you know, we're going to do some great interviews, doing some classic matches, cult heroes, as the listeners have seen. Today it's yourself interview session. So obviously. The listeners won't know that we first came into contact with one another, you and I, from working on a Chelsea podcast about a year ago, I think it was, which sadly yeah. that seems to be no more. But it was a yeah. fun journey, fun journey. <laughs> it was. It got taken over and, and it's never really come back the same since, really. Yeah, uh, it's a shame. Um, but it's a great pod, great pod it was, when Simon was getting a good community together. And it really got, as I say, it got me into touch with so many good Chelsea like producers that I wouldn't mm. have got into touch with anyway, yourselves included, I guess. Yeah, it, it was a fun little, it was a fun journey. But now these interview episodes, they're certainly my favourite type of podcast to do as we find out more about the person behind the profile name, so to speak, or the podcast, etc. So with that, I'll go straight into the opening question. How did you come to support Chelsea? How did I come to support Chelsea? My dad wouldn't have it any other way. I grew up, it must have been about when I was about five or six, he got me watching games. My first memory as a football fan would have actually been um, beating Arsenal at Highbury 2-1, Ranieri's sort of last hurrah. Um, And I remember watching that. I must have been really, really tiny. But that's my first Chelsea memory. And and my dad and I have been to games since, I think, 2005. So it's all gone from there. Oh, wow, that's incredible. So, obviously, it was from a very, very young age then that you came into contact with this great historic football club. And it's sort of been a family thing then, I'd assume. Um, Well, my dad, as a boy, and it's a habit I would never follow myself, was a scout supporter. Okay. He moved to London. He, 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 He grew up in the suburbs of London anyway. But he moved to Kensington, I think, about sort of a 10-minute walk from Stamford Bridge. Mm. And, he, and he's always sort of, that was probably early 90s, just before we sort of became glamorous. And he'd sort right. of go to the bridge every other week. But actually, it got to a point where he became a Chelsea fan. Um, and it wasn't a kind of, 
wasn't a plastic football supporter anymore. He sort of became a full fan. <laughs> so have you got, a, is your whole family then Chelsea or is it just purely yourself and your dad? Yeah, it's me and my dad. My So all my cousins aren't really football fans, apart from a couple I have in America who are big Arsenal fans, which I couldn't tell you why. I think it was because their dad liked Freddie Lundberg. Um, great player. Great player, yeah, but obviously the wrong side of London. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it, it's not one of those sort of, I'm, I'm from a Chelsea family sort of thing. No, it's not. I mean, I've been watching Sunderland till I die and you see those families where it's clearly like illegal to support one else and it doesn't matter. But it's not. No, it's very much while my sister and my mum are doing other things. Football bores them silly. My dad and I have been Chelsea fans. Fair play. That is that you, you mentioned that documentary. I am currently four episodes into the second season. Thoroughly enjoying it. It, it showed. Oh, really? That. That first season, I absolutely loved it. It also was really interesting to see behind the curtain, especially with the Jack Rodwell situation. And you you just get a completely different perspective. And, you know, you almost, you, you feel sorry for how Sunderland's board of directors had to deal with that because obviously they, they needed that money. And we've obviously as a club been through that financial sort of issues where players <laughs> have sat on. Yeah, exactly. Who have sat on money and irrelevant of whether they've been professional or not with it. You think we're, hemorrhaging money in such debt and we need a bit of help and it's such a great such a great watch and i encourage anyone who's got netflix to give that a go so what is the story behind how you got found yourself writing for absolute chelsea so weirdly i came onto twitter because a friend of mine who's still at school actually he was a family friend of ours um you'll all know him he's will rayner on twitter he he had twitter and he introduced me january last year to Twitter, he said he knows some of the some of the sort of bigger accounts and he got me in touch with some people and it wasn't till about march or april when i was in a group chat with one of the um echo content content i think the head of content at the end chat to me and i think matisse you guys would thrive off the podcast come on and guest so I guested on the pod and then i actually started writing as well i i asked if i could in you know in addition to guesting on the pod sort of regularly i could come on and actually write as well uh and in the end it got to a point where where yeah i was writing once or twice a week for them so that's um, nice is that is that been always a like an ambition of yours to sort of get into football journalism in any form or no, was it just something that all. came up not at all just a hobby of mine because i was studying abroad in paris anyway um and i was doing lots of things lots of new things but i had some time on my hands and and i just did it as a hobby writing about my club it was no, oh, fantastic. It wasn't a sort of career move. I know a lot of people who wanted to get into journalism were joining. And I'd recommend it to anyone who does want to join, you know, go into football journalism to join a publication like you know, a blogger, like an absolute Chelsea or one of those upstart. But no, for me, it was just it, it was literally just a hobby. And then I got into YouTube with my friend who does want to become a radio presenter. Um, but no, for me, it's very much uh, something I do is just do for fun, really. Yeah. So, so you obviously mentioned there that you spent some time in Paris, lived in Paris. What what was that way of life like compared to what it is over here in the UK? It was incredible. I mean, I was studying. So I, I studied for uni at uh, Uni of St Andrews anyway, and that's quite a small community, really small town. And I mean, I've just just you know, unfortunately, my final year has been cut short. But it's such a small community where everyone knows everyone, and then moving to Paris. 
it's completely the opposite. I mean, it's huge. You get the metro to all the lectures and stuff. And I absolutely loved it. It was exactly the way I wanted to live. I met loads of great people, including my good friend, Mayan, who's from Israel, but she's a huge Liverpool fan, which disappoints me a bit. But <laughs> it's great to be able to talk football because yeah. I met people, you know, you meet people in cities in the most amazing ways. Like I was on a metro, I think it was, on a, on a, on a tour bus or something, talking football with, um, with somebody else. I think it was a Turkish guy. And my, my now and one of my close friends, Maya, and she, she just comes up to me or comes up to us both and said, are you, you two both talking about football? Because I'm a huge Liverpool fan. And, and I just loved how my time in Paris, it was typified by sort of meetings like that. And people have now gone on to be really close friends of mine, actually. Yeah. I think that that's the thing. Football is such a universal language. You know, it's something that if it's a new job or you're at a party or whatever and you're socialising, nine times out of ten, you can mention football and you've got an instant connection with someone then. You could, there's always, someone always will have an opinion on whether it's but right again, or... But then again, I'm sure everyone listening can relate to a time where you'll go to an event, you won't know anyone. It might be something where your girlfriend or a friend of yours is taking you to an event where no one knows. And you try and just talk football with some of the guys or ladies there and not a single one's a football fan. You know, sometimes you get one of them and then yeah. it's worse because you get the... I know it's, what you mean. You yeah. sort of dangle it out. Is You know, if, if you can start talking about football, you've got a conversation all night. Yes, for sure. I mean, there's a amount of times it's worse for me is when someone says, oh, I'm not into football, I'm into rugby. And I'm like, I'm screwed here. I have nothing. I have nothing on rugby. I literally have nothing. I'd have to wing it and just literally pretend that I know what I'm on about. You know, uh, Harling, Johnny Wilkinson. <laughs> yeah, I see. I know about that. I know about the World Cup from all but anything modern I'm like not a clue it's it's one of them you're like please just give me football you know I need I need football so on that we'll go on to Chelsea now Chelsea came into the season without Eden Hazard we're under a transfer back Lampard how do you feel we have performed over this season compared to what would be our original expectations before this season actually began I'm very happy indeed I mean it was at the top end of what I expected. I mean, I, it wasn't what I would say, like, above expectations. I mean, this could... It wasn't what I would say I go in... I always go in with a range of expectations, like a best and a worst case. And if it's above the best case, then I say we're overperforming. It wasn't that. I'd say this is just about the best case. Um, and I'm very satisfied with the team and the identity that we're forming. Um, one area I'd want to improve bit is getting a shape together but more or less I'm very happy indeed with the way we're going I mean I don't think anyone can complain about about it um I'm not sure about you but no I mean obviously I think we've all had our expectations sort of change over the season because we kind of expected we felt top six would be fair we'd love a top four finish but because of the situation we were sort of put into a top Four finish felt very ambitious, even though we are a big club and we should be striving for that. And then obviously we had that run of form. Everyone sort of clicked together and you thought, wow, we're top four. And now as the season's gone on, you've seen the likes of Wolves start to threaten, even Sheffield United and Man United even more so with the likes of Bruno Fernandes arriving, how it's lifted their team. And now you're starting to think we should be top four. We've been there for the whole season. You sort of maybe take it for granted a little bit. 
because it's, it's yeah. a, so such a surreal season in terms of football with like you feel like there's the two runaway teams in Liverpool and City and then it's a, a, a mixture even Leicester have started to drop off now and you start to think hmm okay we, we this is the best opportunity to get this top four earlier than we sort of thought we'd we'd get to really yeah and I guess the thing was right at the start I remember you know we got thrashed at United we clung on for a draw at home to Leicester and that was before everyone realized quite how good they were yeah, and was really, really panicking because, I mean, you know, there were people thinking this is going to be worse than 15, 16. There are always those doom mongers in the fan base. But I thought, you know, then we, as you say, we got that run together, but we, we had that, a little bit of an issue in the Champions League and we lost to Valencia. But we've, it, it, it's been a funny old season and kind of the way that it's kind of been either cut short or had a long break in the middle, it will benefit some teams and it won't benefit others. And this season for us has been like a season in fits and starts because we had, and it seems for me like it happens almost every year since we won the league in 2016. You start well, you win a few games at the start, then you drop off at Christmas where we seem to buy a win. Mm. And then spring after about February, March, we go back to winning every week again. Um, And that's been a season as well, I think. Yeah, it really has. I mean, especially the injuries as well. I mean, I'll touch on him in a second, but Pulisic, you know, with him as well, he had that perfect hat trick he scored against Burnley and injuries have just sort of really hit him hard. So with N'Golo Kante as well, we've been really injury struck this season. And, you know, it's a it's a break that nobody wanted for obvious reasons and what's going on around the world. It, it's, it's awful, you know, and we all want to get through this as, you know, as safely and as soon as as possible and there's so much going on around the world that football just fades into insignificance which of course it should so what was weird about that Pulisic injury that you were talking about nobody actually really knows what it is yeah I have no idea because I I doubt he'd have fallen out with Lampard or anything like that no unlikely so it's strange how the club really haven't said anything it was a bit like Mario Goetz's a couple of years ago when he had that rather unfortunate injury that nobody found out about till afterwards. Yeah, I mean, in the summer, obviously, we did make some sign-ins. I say some. Officially, we were under a ban, of course, but we had, obviously, Christian Pulisic join up with the squad after his January move. And then Mateo Kovacic became a permanent addition for £40 million. How, made. Yeah, yeah, I mean, when we will touch on him in a second, but how have you found Pulisic's development this season before the injury? How's he well, fitted in? Weirdly, with Kovacic... I wasn't one of those who, in the Sarri season, was really giving him a hard time. I mean, I, I saw a player that was was of top quality. Uh, and then I know I remember hearing loads of people saying he's not Premier League standard, he's a Real Madrid reject. And I never bought any of that. But then again, he's developed. And I think we've seen his real strengths this season, the fact he's a technical player. And he's got such a good control of the ball, on the ball. And off the ball, actually, he's a brilliant centre midfielder. But then again, I think the Sarri season, people would have seen that more if we hadn't had the Regista in Jorginho. Mm, very true. With Kovacic, you know, it, it, simple as this, is Kovacic our player of the season? Yes, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt for me. I mean, there are lots of honourable mentions, being like Tammy Abraham, yeah. Mount. I wouldn't call him player of the season because... And I don't blame him for this. Lampard played him to the ground, ran him to the ground. 
didn't give him a rest. Um, and then he was playing pretty poorly over the Christmas period because he was carrying a load of injuries. But there are several players who I think get honourable mentions, but I think Kovacic, even Jorginho, I thought has been exceptional this season. Um, but I think Kovacic has to take the biscuit. And I think most fans would agree with me on that. I, the thing is, the, we probably wouldn't have even signed him if it wasn't for the ban. I think the opportunity was there and we just sort of needed that strength in depth because of what was going on, where we just thought we're going to have to pay this 40 million. And he has been incredible for us. I mean, why is he so different this season under Lampard compared to Sarri? Well, as I was saying earlier, like, I don't think he is. I think he's been given a slightly more free role and a slightly better responsibility, but I actually think he's been able to play to his technical strengths, particularly when he's in a double pivot where, mm. you know, you can't, give all the technical play to Jorginho. And I think the best game I remember him playing, or I remember them both playing, was the Watford game away from home, where they, they were both playing in a pivot, Jorginho and Kovacic. And they were, they were like, it was like you had two creative midfielders, but you had the defensive strength that Kovacic provided as well. It, it, it was absolutely incredible midfield performance. And I think it's the fact that he's been given some of them a bit more of the defensive responsibility, as well as having a slightly deeper playmaker role, which I think has made him, you know, smashing, smashing season. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's been slightly different, but slightly similar. And, you know, he has been incredible. Every time I've seen him and I've paid more attention doing this podcast, I've paid more attention to the games and how the players sort of play on their own and his footwork is so so enjoyable to watch it's incredible and, and and the thing was i think when he under sari under the you know when he was in a sort of center mid role i guess kind of very inverted commas it, it didn't give him the scope to really carry the ball a great deal and move it around and because i think sari had quite an assigned role for him he was to be a kind of destroyer midfielder and to help you know quickly get the ball out wide to the wingers but then now he's been, now Lampard's had a slightly less defined shape. He's he's been able to use his like his vast technical quality so much. You know? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if we go move away from Chelsea for a moment and look at the general order of football, we'll go back to your sort of origins of getting into the sport. Which non-Chelsea players for you did you sort of idolise and love to watch as you sort of grew up? Oh, there's only one for me he, growing up thought was the best in the world. And that was Ronaldinho. He was, oh, those, those, those ties between 2005 2000, and 2006 when Chelsea played Barcelona. I think we played four games against them. And then we played them in the groups in 2000, 2006 as well. He was remarkable. His oh. skill, his guile... He was unstoppable. And he was a player where, you know, when you're on the playground and you're, you know, some blonde English guy, that was who I wanted to be. Nowhere near. Yeah, I mean, I remember that in uh, 2005. You know, we eliminated them in the round on aggregate. But on the time, we beat them 4-2 on the night at Stamford Bridge. But his second strike, I mean, that was... He faints and the ball, it's a toe poke goal, beats check from 20 yards. And you, you, you don't know how he's done it. It's just so, it was just a pure piece of genius. You're spot on. And, and, and I mean, even the year after, he absolutely schooled us at the new Camp. Like he, he ran us to rags and, and 
you watch it and you just you just have to gasp like the second the second goal at the bridge you, that you're mentioning yeah was um apparently you know Stanford Bridge was just on its feet applauding you know there's nothing nothing else you can do yeah it's one of the few players that really you know induce that you know yeah I, I find it incredible that he only ever won one Ballon d'Or yeah it's inc- I, I, you know, in it, but you know, it was an era where obviously the year before he won the Ballon d'Or in 05, he came third behind Deco and Shevchenko. Both ended up at Chelsea as well, which is great. But in that oh, 05, he beat Deco. he beat Lampard into second place when he claimed it. And then the year after was Cannavaro. He won the World Cup, so you can't really, it's hard to argue that one. And then it was Kako before the uh, duopoly of Ronaldo and Messi sort of took charge. So yeah, it's real real special player and it's it's interesting how his his career and his life as well as sort of developed now he's playing for a prison team at the moment it's um it's a, it's definitely a, it's a, it'd be a great documentary to watch how his life has one gone like one of those players where yeah it is I, I almost wish he that you could get a bit more out of him because it's another one where you don't you want you wish he'd been even a step higher than he was and he's another one of these Brazilians where I think their, um, I think their discipline maybe wasn't there. Like Adriano was another one who was so good, mm. but that never really, yeah, never really, um, never really achieved his potential despite having you know a huge reputation and a huge name. Yeah, you I wish mean, there would be a bit more, you know. Hundred percent. I mean, as we all know, the Adriani story—it's—it's it's such a sad one. You know, he, the emperor, see the unfortunate tragedy behind his father and everything. And you know, you, I think we all do sort of forget that at the end of the day, footballers are just like you and I—they're—they're they're human beings, and the mental toll that just the pressure, and as well as outside family influence, and you know, tragedies as well. It can—it will affect as it does us all. And it's such a shame watching players like himself who could have been up there with the likes of Messi, Ronaldo, etc. And they didn't get the careers that they could have had. It's such a, a sad unfilled potential. Heading back to the Premier League, like other leagues across the globe currently suspended due to the pandemic, there are so many theories on how to conclude the season. They're being brainstormed about from a festival of football to simply just declaring the season void. I, I've got to ask it, how would you conclude it? What do you feel is the best way? Well, I mean, you hear all the money, all the issues of money and scheduling. I mean, from a strictly biased Chelsea perspective, it wouldn't be an issue for me if there were no more football played because we'd pretty much be assured of Champions League because we're in the top four. Or if they completely void the season, we were there last season. Um, but I think if, if you do declare void, it, it's that question of, as to whether you declare Liverpool champions or not. For me, I don't I don't think there'd be any problem with that. Um, as much as it's funny um, to obviously not have Liverpool winning the league, coronavirus isn't funny. And if voiding the season for people's safety means giving them the league, I'm happy to do that as well. What I do think completely ridiculous actually is the fact that they're trying to play the the stories about them wanting to breach the lockdown to play the final games behind closed doors in like quarantine stadiums it's ridiculous you know yeah 100 percent. i mean we've seen as of recording today uh the belgian pro league became the first major european league to cancel 
the season due to the crisis and they've awarded the title to Club Brugge. Simple as that. that. Yeah. Well, you know what they're doing with European spots? Because that's all... I no. I, I play the cup final, which I assume probably decides a Europa League spot. But I know that the Belgian league, I don't know if it's Belgian or the Dutch league, they actually have playoffs for the European positions. Yeah. So I wonder if they want to try and play those or if they're going to actually just say, do you know what, we'll just award it on league position, you know, one night only, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting because I don't, as far as I know, I they're going to decide the relegation and promotional issues at a later date this month. So that's going to be very interesting. But Well, that's, like, that's strange because that's going to... <laughs> and, and I was mentioning this to a friend, actually. What any league that voids does with promotion and relegation is going to bring legal challenges either way. Because if you relegate a team without the season being complete, they've got grounds to legally challenge. But also if you promote teams, particularly in England with the playoffs, I think most second tiers of a playoff system, there's going to be legal challenges as well. So I think football is going to get into a really muggy, um, you know, pseudo legal so I think we're all going to learn a lot more in the next few months, next few years about about the sort of football courts and you know the money the money involved that goes to TV producers and TV shows. Yeah, but I mean something that got mentioned to me only the other day: if they declared it null and void, and there's obviously the argument with the TV money, what about players' bonuses, such as a striker who's got a goal scoring bonus? Because technically none of those goals are valid. They're void. So if the, they've already do, been paid that bonus, that has to be paid back then. What I they would do is they, they, I don't think they can just wipe the games, you know, from the edge of the earth. I think they'd have to say, you know, these games will go in the official record and will be recorded as completed fixtures. But maybe the actual outcome of the league will be sort of an in, have a sort of black mark next to it, like a kind of incomplete... Mm. wasn't able to finish sorry that sort of a thing i think yeah it's crazy you know because then in that case tammy abraham still got to make his you know first league start for chelsea (laughs) he's not played a chelsea game yeah and and i mean i i don't think that works i think they're going to have to obviously have it so that the game records do take place but i don't know what they would do regarding I mean, with the table and with like prize money, that's another one. You know, Premier League prize money is hugely significant, particularly lower clubs. Yeah, what for sure. Give, what do you give them instead of the 30 million that they get from the Premier League for finishing, you know, for Burnley finishing 12th or whatever? 100%. It's going to be very interesting to see how the football side of this develops over in the coming months. Heading into next season under Lampard, what what do you feel he can do to improve the side? And who are the players that you would like to see us realistically make moves for? Well, I mean, obviously there's the links with Jaden Sancho. I'm one of those who I don't need him. And if if, if the rumours are true about United having to pay him 400 grand a week, they can mm-hmm. have him. He's all theirs. It's, like- it's insane. It's insane. If it's true, it's insane money. It really is. You know, I'd like to look at Lautaro Martinez possibly as a striker, winger, kind of replacement, not replacement, but competition for Tammy. Um, I, I think we need a left back, um, like more than anything. Um, I'm, I, I don't think we need to replace Kepa necessarily, but I do think we need the, the positions I prioritise, a winger, striker as competition and left back as well. 
Then I would look at the centre-backs. I think we could do with a top, top-tier centre-back. And then I think, realistically, we just got to give players experience and we will win things. You know, if we get a, you know, we... we, we... Yeah. There's so much move that it feels like it will it just will happen it could be wrong bizarre about it was i remember when we were linked with alexandro during conte's after conte's title winning season we were then linked with alex tellez and we're told if we can't get you know sandro we'll get tellez and that never really happened i mean i think that those rumors vanished off the face of the earth and and i mean we have had these sort of really hot links and then we sort of pulled out at the last minute so I really hope you're right, because I think he's a top class player. I've signed him on football manager for Chelsea <laughs> a fair few times. But yeah, it's gonna be interesting. For Chelsea, I just never take a transfer for granted because look at the Ziek deal. Nobody had the faintest idea. No one had No, out of nowhere. And then, you know, great signing. Chelsea seem to know how to keep quiet about some deals. So a bit like what they were like 15 years ago. You did a deal. You didn't know about a deal because social media wasn't the in its heyday as it is now. It just happened. A deal did. And you were like, wow, where, where did that come from? And I sort of do miss that bit of nostalgia because it is, one, you, you pay less because obviously there's no that competition. And it's just nice to have that surprise. You think, wow, we've got this player. You know, it's just it's just a nice sort of throwback to a bygone era almost. And you get that sort of... Yeah, and it's not about the finances. It's it, it's how how you get a player that's really exciting that you haven't watched a million times on YouTube. And you know, the one thing that winds me up, and I and 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 I, and I don't think I've been guilty of this, and I don't think you have either, is there being these football Twitter experts who claim to have watched some unknown centre back from the uh, from the league arm and can tell me all his attributes. I mean, that I do agree with you. It's kind of that's the difficulty to have a transfer rumours and links. And that's why it's so nice when the club do kind of keep it, keep it completely quiet. I mean, yeah. what I remember was when um, we signed Zappa Costa on deadline day, 2017. I mean, it doesn't matter how it turned out, but no one knew about him. I mean, I doubt anyone before about nine or 10 o'clock that deadline day knew who Davide Zappa Costa was. No. And that was <laughs> nice to actually get a player through who we didn't know about. I had high hopes for him and I actually think he maybe didn't get the chance at Chelsea he deserved. But it was it was an example of how Chelsea had been able to keep quiet and the fans, you know, there really is all to play for in the transfer window that will just get a new deal completely out of the blue. And I hope maybe that can continue, you know? Yeah, hopefully so. So one question I do like to put forward to most people having this part is what do you feel is a common myth about your club that you feel is completely untrue? Um, oh, there are so many here. I mean, I think a myth is that I think there are two. And I mean, one that's going to get covered by a lot of Chelsea fans, which is, you know, we ain't got no history, all of that. But we, we're a club that's, that's, you know, won the league in 55, won FA Cups in the 60s, 90s, you know, we've gone through the gears. I mean, yes, you know, before we got huge investment, we weren't incredible, but before we got the billionaire, we were winning European trophies. We were winning all the domestic cups. So I, I always find that quite rich because 
particularly also the people who give that to me are, for, say, Tottenham fans. Well, I don't remember them winning much in the 90s. Mm. Uh, I think they won a one League Cup, possibly. But the second one would be, especially since we won the Champions League, oh, we buy trophies. And I think our club's a lot more sophisticated than that now. I think the way that we conduct football business, one of the best-run clubs in the world in terms of transfers and, and deals. And again, that myth that I think a lot of Chelsea fans buy into, you know, Marina out, board out, we're so crap. No, I don't think so. I think we've got a way of, you know, there's a foot, there's at least one football brain in our, in our boardroom. You know, we have Petr Cech there as well, but there are people there that know the business of sport and it's not just blindly out on players. And that's another myth I want to do yeah. Yeah. So with that, what about an opinion on Chelsea that you have that many would disagree with you on? Oh, oh, I've got I've got quite a few of these. Um, obviously, my views on Sari don't don't you know impress everyone. Um, but are you were similar to me on that. Um, for me, I think Claudio Ranieri was one of the most important managers in our in our club's history. And I think he did one of the one of the best jobs in the circumstance. And I think a lot of people, particularly when he came back to go to Leicester, they weren't that until he got successful that suddenly, oh, Ranieri, this, Ranieri, that. No, I always was a big fan of Ranieri's uh, and the role he played in our future success. Yeah, he did do. He, he was good for us before, obviously, when we had Roman's money, and he did get us into the Champions League. But it was before that. Before that. He still got us into European qualification, and he still got us. You know, he still got us Euro, European every, every year. There was a year we had literally no money to spend in a summer summer window. You know, people talk about transfer bans, but that was literally nothing. We you know we we didn't get a young one of the most high highly rated wingers on the planet in through the door during a ban. That was the only player we got was Enrique De Lucas. And he was able to consolidate and win us, you know, win us. I don't think he won us anything, but but we got, you know, top six, another year's European money and allowed us to qualify for the Champions League the year after. Yeah, I mean, it was he did an incredible job on what resources he had. And he's also shown himself as a good manager at Roma and also obviously Leicester where he won the title, which I think every Chelsea fan was so happy to see him lift that trophy because he deserves it. He really, he's such I a great him. guy. With Roma, people forget, you know, he's never won the league and stuff. He was 30 minutes from winning the league. Yeah. Roma. And then Mourinho, um, you know, Mourinho's Inter, as Mourinho always used to do, managed to turn it round. Uh, yeah, he really got, he got so, he just he ate away at that lead in that year. Mm. And that famous treble might not have been that with uh, Mourinho, of course. So And another, another good series for the isolation, actually, um, because... I've watched this before is if you go on YouTube football Godfathers, where it goes through the managerial careers of Ericsson, um, Ranieri, I think it goes Gerard Houllier, um, and a couple of others uh, Van Gaal's on there as well. Um, absolutely fantastic stories about how football's evolved. It, it makes for great watching. I think it's an hour long interview for each or half an hour for each, but it's well, well, well worth a watch. Um, well worth a watch. Sweet. So whenever I do interviews, I like to bring in some quick fire questions. 
So go ahead. Don't be afraid to expand on these as you so wish. Straight up, first simple question. Favourite Chelsea player of all time? Oh, I hate this question. Uh, super Frank, just about. Can't, can't argue with Super Frankie Lampard. You know, manager, legend, fantastic all-round guy. Next one, worst signing for Chelsea. I mean, this is, this is, there's a long list we could have, but who was your particular worst signing that we've ever made? Asia Del Horno. Okay, that is quite, that was a left field. I didn't expect that one. He was terrible. Yeah, I, I just remember him for Messi getting into a red card. That's all I remember him for. And that possibly cost us a place in the Champions League because, you know, we, we, we went ahead that day and then lost 2-1. In his stupid studs-up challenge meant that we weren't really able to cope. Pointing. Yeah, it's a, certainly a memory that we probably don't want to dwell on too, too much. I mean, from a negative memory there, how about a favourite moment as a Chelsea fan? Oh, this is tough as well. Um, I'm not going to be boring and say Munich or Barcelona because even though those two were incredible. I think uh, everyone loves them. They're just they're, they're one of those memories that they're always going to be there. <laughs> but like those two were some of the greatest nights ever. But I think I think beating Liverpool in the semi-final of the Champions League uh, in 2008 was a huge step forward. That mm. was one of the most you know, incredible nights ever. You know, Lampard after his mother's death scoring that penalty nervelessly. Another one, another favourite memory for me would be the another one over the Scousers, actually, 2005 League Cup final. Um, I was doing a pub quiz. I was running a pub quiz yesterday about this um, when Gerard scored an own goal to equalise for us in the last minutes. Uh, and then we go on and win it in extra time. That was a very important memory. First trophy in the Abramovich era. So those are those are two two favourite memories that I remember. You know, Ryan jumping up and down and laughing and happy. So no, that's that's a fair. I can't really. I, those are two. You know, two fantastic moments from our history. Slightly similar to that, actually. But what about your most memorable goal scored for Chelsea? Most memorable goal. Ooh. Oh, goodness me. I think it was uh, Nemanja Masic against United. Zuma's uh, reaction. That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a weird one. Normally, when, when people ask football questions, you, you don't want to go too recent because you worry that you're going to get known as a kind of, oh, we only sported for a while back. But, but that goal was another one. Watching it with a Spurs fan. And, and I remember, I mean, he's somebody who's actually a bit of a, a, bit of a mare to deal with. <laughs> And and I was convinced they were going to win because if you, if you remember at the time, we were slightly struggling. You know, our lead at the top had been cut from 12 points to about six or four. And I thought, you know, if we lose to Tottenham in the cup, we're going to be, you know, the winning league's going to be really, really difficult. And that Matic goal just finished, finished it off. It was beautiful. What about which players should we all, we all have, a, we already know who's come through this season, but who are the players that we should be keeping an eye on who could become key players at Chelsea in the years to come? For me, uh, there are two. It's Andurin, Faustino Andurin and Armando Brogia. Those are the two for me I look at and I think, wow. You know, obviously Gilmore, but he's now first team. So I'm not going to say he's a prospect, even though he kind of is. Um, but for me... It's got to be those two. They're both going to be um, 
incredible players. Two players we definitely will be keeping an eye on for sure. I hope, hopefully, they they get the opportunities in the squad and show, obviously, like the likes of Reese James, Tammy Abraham, Mason Mount. You know, come in like they have as well this season. So it'd be great to keep an eye on them. And, and finally, which player would be the best to have a drink with? Oh, well. Um, if you want too many, I guess you go for Danny Drinkwater. <laughs> yeah, uh, it could be. Yeah, I don't know. It could end in a fight. I mean, yeah, I, you don't. It doesn't have to be a current player. It can be one yeah. from the past. I know who uh, one always sticks to my mind. Michael Ballack for me. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, that'd be fair. That'd be a fair shout. That could be an enjoyable I'm night out of a German pilsner. Sit, sit, you know, in a little mountain chalet and talk everything Chelsea with him because he's still a player who. And it's strange because I wouldn't necessarily expect it from him. He's a huge Chelsea fan, you know, even in his retirement. And oh, yeah. Come on our club's media and spoken about about us and draws and stuff. He He's just a Chelsea fan. And, and I'd love to just sit and talk Chelsea with him. A bit like what we're doing now. Yeah, I mean, iconic. very, very intelligent football brain as well. For yeah. sure. It'd be great to footprint. great to see him more on our, our screens, either as a pundit or something as well. It'd be great because he's he really, really is an impressive, impressive guy. So with that, I truly appreciate the time you've taken to obviously appear on this episode. Where can our listeners find you on social media if they don't already know by now? Oh, so I'm on Twitter at Tovers98, but I've also just yesterday launched a new YouTube channel. Um, with my friend Josh. So we're Josh and Tom's Football Games Room on YouTube. Um, and I'm sure you'll find a link on my Twitter feed as well. Um, if you can drop us a sub, that would be incredible because we're a new upstart channel. All football quizzes, things like that. And we're all from different clubs as well. So I recommend you give that a follow. And you might even get a guest appearance as well. Oh, that'd be great. I look forward to that. That that would be something I'll be definitely checking out later and hopefully getting on in the future. So I feel with that, we've come to the end of another episode of At The Bridge Pod. So till next time, listeners, this is myself, Mikey, signing off. We will return next week where we will talk all things Chelsea. So until then, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at At The Bridge Pod. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, 